0: Welcome back to Page of the Wind, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Name of the Wind, page by page. No, we don't. Welcome back to The Wise Man's Page, the daily podcast where we read Patrick Rothfuss's The Wise Man's Fear, page by page. This is, this is page 617, chapter 92, Taberlin the Great. I woke. I was warm and dry. It was dark. I heard a familiar voice, questioning. Martin's voice. It was all him. He did it. Questioning. I won't never say, Den. I swear to God I won't. I don't want to think of it. Get him to tell you if you want. Questioning. You'd know if you'd seen. Then you wouldn't want to know no more. Don't cross him. I've seen him angry. That's all I'll say. Don't cross him. Questioning. Leave off, Den. He was killing them one by one. Then he went a little crazy, he... No. All I'll say is this, I think he called the lightning down, like God himself, like Taberlin the Great, I thought, and smiled, and slept. That's the page and the chapter, I'm Jeremy. I'm Jordana.
1: I'm Nick. And this, I think, becomes a key part of Kvothe's legend, right? That, like... The fact that Dayden doesn't experience it firsthand, he hears it from Martin, someone he trusts, and then Quoth disappears almost immediately after this, he gets taken by Flurian. So when Dayden, the boisterous uh, drunkard mercenary, gets back to town, of course, he's going to be full of stories of this like strange hero kid who he begrudgingly uh, won the respect of before he disappeared mysteriously. Uh, in the in the woods, and then of course Quoth makes a grand entrance, returning from Felurian. But I think that this is a big part of Quoth's myth: um, procreating, 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 provaricating. What's the word I'm looking for, Jeremy? Uh, Propagating. There we go. I did it. Thank you, Jeremy. <laughs> You're welcome.
0: <laughs> I'm so glad Team I could working. help. <laughs> yeah,
1: uh, yeah, Bruce, that's right. It makes the dream work.
0: Um that I think that's completely likely. And I think we get, um, what I want to talk about is the quality of the prose on this page. Uh, that really, sorry,
1: Jeremy, before we get into that, I just want to just to wrap up my thought because you helped me again, teamwork, just land on like the, the bow on this. And that's like, maybe that's why Dayton needed to be in the book. Um, cause you know, I, I asked myself this a lot, like, why is this character in the book? What purpose do they serve? And thinking about how, like if Dayton wasn't in the book, like, Dayden doesn't really do much ultimately in the, the preceding sequence. He just sort of like gets on Quoth's nerves and then blunders into the camp and needs to be rescued. So if Dayton wasn't in the book, everything would have gone on the same way, but Dayden's in the book because Martin is a character who wouldn't tell the story, but Dayden is. So Dayden's in the book so that the story propagates, promulgates. <laughs> um, and so that's, that's sort of like, Ultimately, like that's why that character is there, I think. Sorry, you can carry on now.
0: No, I think that's that's uh a reasonable assessment, uh as Stradana likes to say. Um but I, what I wanted to talk about is the quality of the prose on this page, which is uh very short, direct, matter of fact declarative sentences. You know, I was I woke, I was warm, it was dark, um, I heard a familiar voice. Uh, like he's it's super super spare, and I think that that helps put us in mind without Rothfuss ever having to do any more than what he does, which is describe things from Quoth's point of view. In a movie, this would be a like a black screen with dialogue fading in and out, right? Because Quoth is basically coming out of a fourteen-hour coma, um, and he's still exhausted and weak from the from the bindings he's done, from the, the binders' chills that he has. So this is a really understated, uh, wonderful way to put us in Cloth's frame of mind and through that frame of mind facilitate the bare bones of a conversation we need to know happened, but that we don't need to relive because it's it's just going to be Martin telling us stuff we already know because we saw it happen. Jordana, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. Yes. Um...
1: Yeah, normally you just won't shut up. Just yeah. talk in our ears. I know, off I'm a real chatterbox. Uh, Barely I, real. I, I honestly have very little on this page other than my main note, which must wait till the end.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough.
1: I will say that I find this to be a bit of a bookend, also. This is a bit of an act break because we really do pivot to a new subject. This is like the end of the the hunt in the woods. Like we've had our climax. If this was like. You know, this would be like the end of the episode or the beginning of the next episode or even like a commercial break almost like this is very much a cesura, if you like, between the the next uh, the, the preceding act and this act. This is like a bit of a mental break. It's also kind of a rest montage for Kvothe, uh, which I think vicariously is a bit of a like mental rest for the reader because we get a short chapter we get some blank space on the page to rest our eyes, and we get to kind of vicariously enjoy Kvoth's little mental triumph as he smiled and and smiles and sleeps after the hardship he's endured. In a way, it, it it's what Nick said. It's like he's he's smiling after hardship. But also, if you think about what Martin is saying about him, even though it is like what will contribute to his story, it's also like kind of sounds bad. Like, I don't know if I would ever want someone talking about me that way.
0: I was saying that that, like, Oh yeah,
1: he killed them all one by one. Then, then he went a little crazy. Like, Ooh,
0: (laughs) I was just going to say, you've teed me up so perfectly for the thing I wanted to talk about, which is (laughs) this, this page does such a good job of in only a few lines showing us how Kvothe's relationship with these other characters has changed. Like, Martin is now terrified of him, right? Martin, as far as Martin's concerned, like, he's warning, he's and he's warning Dayton, like, don't make him angry or he will kill you. He will kill you with perverse sorcery. I've seen him do it. I can't tell you what I saw because it was so horrifying to me that I, like, don't want to think about it ever again. But... I saw this guy mangle a corpse and those wounds showed up on a living man. And if you step out of line, if you keep pissing him off the way you've been doing for the last three weeks, he'll do it to you. So just watch your step, right? Like that's what he's trying to communicate to, to Dayton. like this kid is powerful and dangerous and terrifying. I've seen what he's like when he's, when he's mad, you have to be careful. And that's not at all how Martin, thought about him before right like when Martin saw him use sympathy in the past like when like showed him how he was going to signal he was like startled but he wasn't like afraid of Quoth. he was like ah that was weird I've never seen anything like that happen to me before you know I I, I think
1: it's likely that he was more afraid than he let on I think Martin is actually pretty superstitious Uh, so I think it's likely that he was actually a bit more afraid than he let on but he you know kept it under a mask and now he's like oh my god this guy my dude buddy
0: that yeah that's that's possible but i would say that either way they were like the other people in the party were like disturbed when they found out what quoth was capable of doing but disturbed in kind of an abstract they're like oh this guy does magic and i think magic is weird and and icky but they hadn't actually seen him do anything to confirm all their worst fears about him and now martin has right
1: Yeah, I wonder if Martin is going to continue being an ally. Like, obviously, Quoth and Tempe continue their relationship. But I wonder if, you know, if Martin, like, if Quoth showed up at Martin's door being like, Martin, I want to get the band back together, if Martin would be like, hell no, I'm not ever setting foot outside with you again. Or if he's now, like, you know, a staunch ally who would come to his aid when summoned. I mean... I think he could split the difference and say that he would come to Quoth's aid
0: not out of respect or loyalty, but out of terror. Like, if I don't, what's he going to do to me?
1: And that's interesting, isn't it? To think about our hero having that kind of effect on a person who we think of as being relatively decent.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think what it tells us is that Quoth is a cool guy and it's cool to hang out with him. Just like Taberlin the Great. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, Jordana, anything you want to add? Yes. Well, it is uh, the
0: beginning and the end of a chapter. This chapter was called Taberlin the Great. Um, and uh, it, yeah, it's about cloth being
1: kind of like Taberlin the Great. And that's it. Ta da. I I talked about this. I think that it is to an extent the beginning or, you know, it's another beginning of his many myths and uh, the stories about him because Dayden will go off to tell this story. Martin will never speak of it, but uh, Dayden gets to spin it based on what he did see because he did see a bit of it, I'm sure. And also uh, a bit of his uh, his drunken braggadocio. We have a letter today from our magical friend John, who writes on pages 601 and 594. Hail! On 594, we have Jax asking for the name of the moon. You talk about why Ludus would give up her name. It is possible that she hadn't met a namer before Jax, thus not knowing it would give him power over her. Alternately, it's possible that, until this point, namers had been decent, honorable people who wouldn't use a person's name against them. I would put forward that she was compelled, contractually bound, perhaps, to give her name. What do I have that I can leave with you? If it is mine to give, ask and I will give it. The argument against this is that she she asks only my name, which suggests to me that Ludus was not aware that names could be used against their owners. On page 601, Martin expects his bowstring under a tree while it is raining. I'd like to point out that they are off the edge of the map in a forest so old and vast that many parts of it had probably never been touched by man. It's entirely possible that the forest canopy is proving to be good cover. That's not to say that they're staying dry, rather that instead of rain falling somewhat evenly, that the leaves and limbs are making it so the water is falling in larger drops that are further apart. Being an experienced woodsman, it's not unreasonable for Martin to have some practical knowledge in how to stay dry in a situation like this. Keep up the good work. Magically, signed, John. I agree with your assessment on the bowstring issue, John. I think that the story with Jax is not to be taken literally and is perhaps a, uh, a whitewashing, a papering over or a metaphor of the actual transaction. Uh, shall we say, I suspect that in real life it was, you know, real life, whatever real life is in, in the proto fey world of moons and names and whatnot, that the real act was far more violent. Um, so I don't, I mean, it's possible that it was like a contractual thing, but I suspect that it was more of a uh, a battle. And this act also sparked what we call the creation war, I think. So uh, I, I'm sure that this is a metaphorical name giving and not a literal one. Jordana, any thoughts? Uh,
0: nope. Nope. I am out of things. I have no more things.
1: Well, then. We shall also have no more things, and we shall wrap up this episode of Page of the Wind. Win.